Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. This is your host, Ajara Robinson, and I'd like to tell you about a new feature we have at the Living Proof podcast series, and that's the listener comment line. You can call us at 716-645-3322 and leave a comment or suggestion. And who knows, maybe in a future podcast, we may feature your comment on the air. The number again is 716-645-3322. Call us. We'd love to hear from you. Many of our listeners have heard the phrase trauma-informed or trauma-informed service delivery. But what is it? An evidence-supported model for organizational change and service delivery or simply the new flavor of the month? In today's podcast, part one of a two-part series, Brian Farragher provides some answers. Brian Farragher is a social worker and the executive vice president and COO of the Andrus Children's Center in Yonkers, New York. The center provides a broad spectrum of preventative and restorative mental health services for children and families. Mr. Farragher has worked in the field of childhood mental health for over 25 years, and during the past eight years has worked closely with Dr. Sandra Bloom and the staff at Andrus Children's Center to implement the Sanctuary Model, a theory-based, trauma-informed, evidence-supported approach for creating or changing organizational culture. Mr. Farragher has expertise in developing trauma-sensitive treatment programs and reducing the use of physical interventions in residential settings. He's recently published a book with Dr. Bloom entitled Destroying Sanctuary, a Crisis in Human Service Delivery Systems. In part one, Mr. Farragher describes how the sanctuary model was implemented at the Andrus Children's Center. He also discusses the impact of trauma and repetitive stress on staff and organizations and quality of service. Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the University at Buffalo Graduate School of Social Work, spoke with Brian Farragher by telephone. Brian, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. I heard you speak at that sort of joint work session that we were at for uh, SAMHSA and the Center for Trauma-Informed Care last fall about the work that, that you all have done implementing the sanctuary model. And I know you've been doing a lot of consultation uh, work and training and helping other agencies do that. I thought maybe it would help um, to start with just a really brief, if you could give a really brief overview of what the sanctuary model is, because I don't assume that everybody who listens to this podcast might know sort of the specifics of that. Well, the sanctuary model is is really a trauma-informed system of care. So there's a lot of models out there that are you know trauma-informed and trauma-specific interventions. But this is really you know the sanctuary model is really a whole system approach that really looks at not just you know the relationship between the therapist and the client, but the relationships in the organization and the way the organization functions. So it's based in an understanding of neurobiology and, and trauma theory uh, and the impact of trauma and stress on clients and the staff and the organization. So it really kind of applies trauma theory to really organizational development. So the whole idea is to, to think about how stress 
and trauma impact not just clients who are served by the organization, but the organization itself. So you know, what we see with you know, a lot of organizations is you know, under, under stress, the organization as a whole starts behaving very much like the clients that we're supposed to be serving. So in, in many ways, we end up recreating you know, sort of those traumatic experiences with clients if we're not, if we're not careful. So the whole idea is to really move the system to a, to a different place, not just the, the treatment approach. How long have you been working with this model in, in your agency? Well, we started working with Sandy Bloom, who is the, Dr. Bloom is the developer of the model. We've been working with her since 2001. I would say that we actually developed a consulting agreement with her in 2001. And then we spent probably a year, you know, a year and a half sort of readying ourselves for implementation. And then I would say since about 2002, 2003, we've been at work at trying to, you know, implement. And it's like anything else that you do in your organization. It is, I'd like to say, you know, we are fully a sanctuary now, but, you know, people come and go, you know, things change in the organization. Since we started working with Dr. Bloom, we've done a couple of mergers. We've added, you know, lots of new staff through that process. So you're always sort of creating it it's, and recreating it. It's, it's not, a, uh, not something you do and then, you know, it's done. It's a, it's a constant effort to sort of keep it fresh, to keep it current and vibrant. Can you say something about what the process was for you in implementing this in your agency? Well, you know, the interesting thing was, you know, our process was sort of a, we kind of walked this path before a lot of other people. So there wasn't a clearly thought out process. And, you know, maybe later on we could talk a little bit about, you know, what we do through the Institute in terms of process now with other agencies. But we actually created this and co-created this with, you know, with uh, Dr. Bloom. So the, the process that we engaged in, I think, was a little more intensive and a little more time-consuming than we, we currently do now. We assemble the core team, which is something we still do with agencies that we work with. So we got together a group of about 20 to 25 staff who were there from all levels of the organization, all departments. So we tried to have a representative group and then talked about you know, issues in the organization that were sort of contrary to what we what we believed, you know, so where are the areas that we were struggling where where stress and and trauma were impacting our our work. And then we did a lot of staff training. We actually wrote staff training curriculum together. We wrote psychoeducational curriculum. So there was a lot of, you know, just nuts and bolts to that core team work, which a lot of it was which now is done, and we just give that to agencies that we're working with so they don't have to do all that work. And then what we did was we trained all our staff in the model. We trained all our staff on the on psychobiology and parallel process and and really got everybody to the same place in terms of, you know, the language and, and the, the understanding of the model. And then we rolled out the tools that we use in the model. So we started doing community meetings. We started doing safety planning and those kinds of things, which I can talk more about in a little bit. And then, and so we just over probably, a, like I said, about a two-year period, then we got everybody up to speed on the language and the tools. And then we've had to sort of refresh that as we've gone forward. So it's a, as I said, it's a constant sort of implementation. So you don't sort of implement and then and then you're done. You have to continue to do refreshers on training. You have to continue to train your new staff, learn from 
you know, the mistakes that you make and the successes that you have and, and embed it, you know, further and further into the organization. As I'm, I'm listening to this and thinking about people who, again, may be broadly familiar with the idea of trauma-informed care and of this model, I, I'm remembering you had some wonderful examples in your talk that sort of made this, brought it home and made it live for people, really real, uh, of examples of, of how issues come up and, and how uh, um, you might implement addressing them in an agency from a trauma-informed care sanctuary model perspective that really illustrate the differences. Can you give any sort of specific examples now, you know, just the types of issues that come up in an agency, but but how, sure. how you've approached them? Yeah, I can kind of talk about two things. One is, you know, one is more a client-specific issue, and then one is more of a, you know, organizational-wide issue. On, a, on the client level, I think one of the stories I told in that, um, in, in that presentation was about a boy who had come into our care who had been, you know, very aggressive, had got into, you know, lots of conflict with staff, had lots of trouble with, you know, authority. And the typical way that people respond to that in centers like ours is that, you know, it is about compliance. It's about, you know, uh, sometimes about coercion, you know, that we have our rules and people must follow the rules. And if you don't follow the rules, there's, there's consequences. What we have found, I think, on on the level with the kids is that that's where sort of reenactment takes place. So our our kids, you know, have this script that they come in with that they're they're trouble, they're difficult, they're unlovable, and then they behave in those ways. What I think we did in this case, this particular boy, you know, could be very aggressive and threatening. But what we found over, you know, a short period of time was that he was actually quite a different kid when he was engaged in work. And in a lot of places, too, you know, you got to behave yourself before you can get a job or, you know, that's like a privilege that you have to earn. And what we found was that this boy was at his best when he was working. So we gave him a job. And over time, that job expanded. You know, he, he actually became a really helpful kid. He he helped out staff in that capacity. He worked, you know, with maintenance. So he had done a lot. He did a lot of things that really changed sort of the way uh, we saw him uh, and the way he saw us. And at the end of it, I think he left us uh, last year and actually had made major improvements and not because, you know, you know, we did some other good work with him. We did some real trauma-specific kinds of work with him. But but I think, you know, the idea that, you know, we were going to not fall into sort of his script, but really try to help him recreate a script of his life, that he could be helpful, that he could be an asset, that he could be somebody who who could be productive, uh, was, was really important to him. And I think really changed you know, the trajectory of his life and his and his treatment here. And by the time he left here, you know, he was a kid who I think people had, a, you know, when he came in, I remember just people were all in a twist because he, you know, he was so difficult and uncooperative and aggressive. And then he, you know, by the time he left us, you know, I think, you know, people really, he had made attachments to staff and to and to peers. And it was uh, the beginning of something, I think, that, you know, hopefully, you know, will will follow him uh, as he moves forward. I think on the organizational level, you know, what we have seen is a good example of this, I think, is with, you know, I mentioned before we've had, we've done a couple of mergers and we've we merged with a mental health service some years ago. 
And, you know, we've had this ongoing sort of, I think it's changed now, the tone of it, but there was a sort of ongoing, you know, struggle between the parent agency and then this, the agency we, we merged with around clinical productivity, you know, that they weren't meeting their numbers. And, and that conversation, it just became, you know, at the organizational level, the same kind of thing. There was this script about, you know, how they were underproducing and they were a drain on our, you know, system. And what we found in that was that we had this reenactment basically that was happening with the division in our agency and really understanding that it was a stress response. You know, we were we were concerned about financial losses. They were concerned about the losses of their their agency, you know, and their, their identification and their so there was this constant sort of back and forth where we just became projections for each other. When we were able to sort of talk about that and understand what was happening, that, that we were caught in this, you know, really looping in the past. And I think we were able to change that script. And I think we've seen certainly, you know, much better production ultimately, but better morale and a better sense of, you know, sort of how we're going to work together. But but I think we had to acknowledge what was going on in, in the system. And, and this was this was way up from clients. I mean, obviously, it, it trickles down to clients. So all this stuff trickles down to clients. But, but I think, you know, this was a real system issue that I think we were able to apply, you know, some of the sanctuary principles to around self, safety, affect management, loss, future, and be able to start thinking about, you know, what were the losses that we both sustained in this and, and how do we think about our future going forward and, and start talking about what we can be rather than what what we used to be. And I think, you know, it made a, a major difference in, in our ability to sort of just move forward to a different different place. And I think we're starting to make some real strides as an integrated organization at this point. But it's been, you know, it's been a real challenge for everyone, uh, not just for, the, you know, the administration here, but for, for the division as well. So I think those are two cases where we've applied sort of these principles, not just to the, the treatment of kids, but to the, to the functioning of the organization. It really helps, I think, to make it alive and real for people to understand that. Uh, you know, I'm struck as I'm listening to you that as a leadership style in an organization, I think that sort of requires certain things of you in implementing this. And uh, I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about what you, any personal challenges you've had as a leader in implementing this and continuing to renew it as, as the organization's grown and changed. I think probably the most significant thing, I feel like I've learned something new, you know, almost every day. I think probably the biggest takeaway for me in the last year, honestly, and now that I'm in this a decade, it's, you know, I'm finally learning something, is that I, what I've come to really realize here is that, you know, one of the commitments we talk about in Sanctuary is, is growth and change. And that's really the business that we're in. So we're really about helping people to make really difficult changes in their lives. And it's become more and more clear to me that that begins with me in my organization when I change. You know, I can't change anybody. All right? I can't make anybody do anything differently. When you lead an organization, somebody once told me that, you know, when you're when you're a leader, that implies you have followers and followers choose to follow you. They don't, you know, you can't make them follow you. What I've come to realize, which is a just empowering on one level and frustrating on another, is that, you know, the only thing I can do is change me. But what I have discovered over the last couple of years is that when I make changes and how I behave, 
things change in the organization. So I think what's interesting is that in mental health or human services, that we're we're always focused on you know, trying to get the client to change and accommodate to the way we do business. And I think what I'm learning, sometimes the hard way, is that the first thing that I have to do, that we have to do, is we have to change. So if we're not getting the results that we want, we have to do things differently. And that's a real hard thing to do. I can complain all I want about the way you know one of my staff members is behaving, but if I don't do something different, you know, to address that, it won't change. If I change my approach, it may not change it, but it certainly, I certainly won't get any change if I keep doing what I've been doing. So I think that it's both humbling and, and empowering, I think, to, to know that when I do something differently, it changes, changes everything. People have to change or, or leave or whatever it is, but people, when I choose to do something differently, it, it impacts everyone. And I think that's the whole issue in trauma and stress is that I think clients very often feel like no matter what they do, you know, it won't make a difference. So if, if it doesn't matter, then it doesn't matter if I do it well or it doesn't matter if I do it differently. And I think what, what we're discovering is that, you know, it all matters, you know, and we can always do it better. We can always do it differently. And if we're not getting the results we want, we have to change. Uh, we have to do something different. I think certainly implementing this across even one program is a challenging effort. To do it across an entire agency is especially challenging and has its rewards and benefits, I would think, as well. I wonder if you can say a little bit about, ultimately, the changes in the work that you all do, the outcomes of, of what you're doing, what kinds of things you've seen happen as a result of you implementing and continuing to implement this model. I think the outcomes, and I'm probably not as prepared to talk about the whole quantitative, you know, we're seeing this, this, and this. You know, what we are seeing is that the kids who we're serving, certainly on our campus, are moving back to less restrictive levels of care and, and sticking there. Last year at this time, we discharged about 18 children, and 17 of them went back home to their districts, to their homes. One child had to, you know, go to a, you know, the same level of care, you know, because they age out of here. We only go to ninth grade. So we're seeing, you know, that kids are growing, changing. Uh, what I think is still in front of us is to do that in a much more purposeful way. What I think we see now is that when we don't get caught in struggles with these kids, when we don't get absorbed into their script of how we should treat them, which is often, you know, to be, you know, coercive and abusive, but if we just help kids understand, you know, that they can be something different, that the future can be better, that it doesn't have to be a repeat of the past, and we create opportunities for that to happen, that kids grow and change. So we're seeing that, I could tell you story after story, of children where they have come in and had, you know, just enormous difficulties, and they leave, and you're like, who is this kid? I mean, you know, it's a what happened here? They're, you know, they're, they're really different people. And I think they're different because the opportunities for change were created, you know, that, and I think a lot of programs and our program, I think historically was that once you change, you can get benefits. And I think, I think what you have to do is sort of create some benefits uh, where kids can 
experience different things that will prompt change. And and that's risky business. The problem, I think, in, in many of our settings now is that they're so risk aversive, you know, because you're so worried about getting sued or you're so worried about, you know, some kind of a you know disaster that we're so risk aversive and Change is always change always implies risk. It's it's doing something that you haven't done before, and you have to you know you have to moderate that, and you have to modulate that, but you but you have to do it. And I think we I think we've gotten better at sort of taking calculated risks in terms of how much responsibility and autonomy and privilege and what have you the children are afforded in in care. Um, it's a that's a very dicey road to walk, but I think I I don't think growth happens when you're you know it's all about containment and and uh, risk avoidance. So I think it's counterproductive, frankly. Well, and I would imagine that seeing growth in clients and also having their own growth enhanced and cared about must make a difference in how staff in your agency feel, staff morale issues like that, which I think, you know, people struggle with in this field, people getting burned out yeah. and um, feeling like nothing they're doing is making a difference. Well, I, you know, I think it's, it's a tough line because I think, you know, what I'm describing too is that I think, you know, there's an innate instinct that people have for reciprocity and frankly, retaliation. So deal with children who are very aggressive at times, you know, very dysregulated. They can be, you know, really mean and nasty to people because they don't have, they really don't have the kind of attachment to others that healthier folks do. And so they spend a lot of time trying to, you know, push us off. And I think it's real easy at times for staff to to respond in kind. So I think there's a maybe a tipping point in that where if you can get enough of your staff to the point where they understand that that is a phase that we go through, that you're know, taking sort of your fair share of abuse in the work is, is necessary because that's where the kids are at right now and not responding in kind but helping them to a different place is really, I think, the challenge of the work. So when we talk about morale, I think there are times when staff feel terribly aggrieved that they're getting mistreated by the children and nobody's protecting them or nobody's helping them. And then I think there are times where they're enormously elated by, you know, the results they're seeing in kids. So I think, you know, the leadership role is to really help people you know, contextualize that, that this is the way treatment runs and it's okay. And we understand how hard it is. We support you through that. And well, I'll be perfectly honest, we have failed times in that regard. We've, you know, left our staff twisting sometimes with some very tough situations that we, we should have been more helpful in. And and I think there have been times when we haven't been as clear with staff about, you know, how we want them to conduct their business. So, you know, those are refinements that we're always making with our leadership. It's a very easy this this notion of sort of punitive and coercive sort of responses is our default response and really getting people to have unconditional love for kids is, is counterintuitive very often. Yeah, that's a real challenge. We're getting better at it, but you know, we have a ways to go, both from you know, the staff point of view and from the leadership point of view. Well, and, and it's an ongoing process. It sounds like, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's not about achieving the, some perfect state. It's a process. And when you mess up, you acknowledge it and work 
right. to improve it. That's the whole idea. I haven't talked yet about the commitments that we make, but the whole commitment to growth and change is it is impossible to do this work perfectly. You're going to make mistakes. This is not like IKEA furniture, you know, that we're putting together here. And there's a, you know, there's a book that can tell you, okay, here's what you say when the kid says this. You have to feel that and you have to feel it out. And you're going to make mistakes along that road. But we, it's got to be okay. So people can't feel like they're going to get killed if they make a mistake, but they have to learn from their mistakes. And that's a difficult balance too, because you have to help people to learn without feeling threatened, but creating enough heat for them to learn from it, that they're not going to just keep doing the same things, same wrong things every day. You've been listening to Brian Ferger discuss the sanctuary model. Look for part two of this discussion in a future episode. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time for more lectures and conversations on social work practice and research. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.